You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Well, hey, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at Resonate. And uh, if you have your Bible, would you grab it? We're going to be in Luke chapter 20. We've been in the book of Luke for a long time, and we are closing in uh, on the final chapters of Luke. And uh, according to history, uh, some historians believe that Luke chapter 20 happened on Tuesday uh, of Holy Week. So Tuesday is three days, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, three days before Jesus ultimately uh, goes to the cross in our place, fulfilling all of the prophecy, all of the words he had to say uh, about himself. And so this is a big deal. He's coming down to the end of his life. Uh, And a couple weeks ago, we got to see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, the the triumphal entry. And just quickly, the the city of Jerusalem probably had 100,000 to 200,000 people that lived there. But on the celebration of the Passover, they would have hundreds of thousands of additional people coming into the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, setting up tents around the city uh, to celebrate the Passover feast. So there is a lot of people, a lot of expectation, and it is all culminating in this young prophet who has quite the following. And people are looking at him saying, are you the one? Is this going to be the moment? Are you going to show us who you really are? Is this the military takeover? We're ready. We don't like the Romans. We're all here. Let's make this thing happen. And so Jesus has a massive following. And one of the major groups that follows Jesus around are the religious teachers and leaders of the time. And so he is perpetually teaching with those people there listening. And so in Luke chapter 20, he is going to give us a parable uh, that we're going to check out and and hear from, uh, man, the, the son of God on his way to accomplish the plan of God that ultimately leads to the salvation of God for all of the people uh, who believe. And so we're going to hear what he has to say in these final moments. So in Luke chapter 20, uh, he He just had a moment with the religious leaders where they challenge his authority. And from that authority, he goes right into this parable. And it says this. It says, he went on to tell the people this parable. He is Jesus. Uh, And sorry, words in red, if you have that kind of Bible. All right. He, Jesus, went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. So we're going to read some, talk some, read some, talk some. So stay with me. Right away, there's a man who owns land, and he not only owns land, he has planted and done the work of, of, of producing a vineyard. So he owns some land, he has a vineyard, and he rents that place to some farmers. In that time, that would have been a good gig. I don't have to own the land, I don't have to do all the hard work, I just get to reap the harvest of someone else. Someone else owns it, someone else planted it, but I am working here. Okay, verse 10, uh, it says he went away for a long time. At harvest time, He, being the owner, sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. This is really normal. That's my land. That's my vineyard. I would like some of the fruit of my land and my vineyard. He owns the fruit. He owns the land. He owns the tree. He owns the dirt. He owns the field. He owns all of it. And he simply sends someone to say, hey, could I have some of what I already own? Like, because that seems normal, right? But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The audacity of these tenants, they are acting like they own this place. They send him away. Verse 11, so the owner sends another tenant, 
But that one also they beat up and treat shamefully and they send away empty handed. So the first one just gets beat up. The second one gets beat up and treated shamefully. I don't know what that means, but like beat up the first guy. Second guy, you're also going to get made fun of while you get beat up just to add to the drama. And then still, verse 12, he sent a third and they wounded him and threw him out three times. The owner of the land, the owner of the tree, the owner of the vineyard, the owner of the dirt sends a tenant to say, hey, could I have some of what is mine? And three times these tenants are beat up, sent away empty-handed, and the, the, the tenants are acting like they own the land. In verse 13, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my son. I'll send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. It is safe to say in this parable that the owner is showing remarkable patience. After the first messenger comes back, beat up and empty-handed, you think the owner would show up and drop the hammer on these people, but he's showing remarkable patience. So he sends a second and then a third. It is very clear to everyone listening, there is patience on behalf of the owner. And he says, what shall I do? Maybe I'll send my own son. Verse 14, but when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over, they schemed together. And they said, this is the heir. Let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. They see the son coming. The son is the highest authority. He's the heir of the land. And they planned and they schemed. And they must have assumed, I guess the father is dead. I guess the guy that owns the land is dead. So now he's sending his son. So I guess he only has one son. So if the father's dead and this is the only son, if we kill the only son and the father's gone, then we will have all of this to be ours. We'll, we'll be the owners of this place if we kill the heir. If we take out the highest authority, then the authority will be ours. So they killed the son. At the second part of verse 15, it says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? In verse 16, he will come, because he, the father, is not dead. He will come and he will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, God forbid, God forbid. If you have any Old Testament background, you know that the picture of a vineyard was usually a, a metaphor for the people of Israel. There's Old Testament prophets, there's Psalms that talk about a vineyard being the people of Israel. So they understood that Jesus is talking about an owner of Israel. And there are messengers being sent to Israel. And Israel is throwing out the messengers. And then he says the son is sent to Israel. And they throw out the son. And then the father shows up to the tenants and he kills all of them. Drastic ending to the parable. And they, they hear this and they say, God forbid, this can't be so. They can't be so. In verse 17, Jesus looked directly at them and asked, if, if you don't think that can be so, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. If you don't like my parable, if you don't like the story of the guy who owns the world, owns the vineyard, owns the land, he has renters, renters, temporary renters acting like they own this place. And he sends messengers, temporary can't own property, don't own the vineyard, renters, sends out the messengers. So he sends another messenger, kicks him out, sends another messenger, kicks him out, sends his son and the renters, the temporary renters, throw out the son. And then the father comes and kills the renters. And all the people of Israel are like, God forbid, that's not a fair story. And then Jesus looks at him and says, if you don't like that story, then what do you think about this Bible verse? Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. If you don't like that, then what do you believe of this? Verse 18, 
Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And the teachers of the law and the chief priests, they looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Lots of people there, lots of people listening. They understand really clearly what's happening in the parable and they are frustrated and they want Jesus out of here. They want to get rid of this guy, but they are afraid of the people primarily because Jesus has said, Psalm 118 is happening right now in your midst and I am the cornerstone that was prophesied about. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I am here as the fulfillment of the prophecy. Now, I don't know if you have building background or not. I'm not that good at building stuff. I like to try building stuff. YouTube is amazing. There's videos for everything. Uh, Usually there's sayings in the building world. If you're good at stuff like measure twice, cut once, do it right or do it twice. I'm like, do it wrong. So I do it four times. And in the process of doing it four times, I kind of learn how to do it, but then I don't do it for a while and forget. So the next time I do it, I got to do it four more times. It's terrible. Just pay someone who knows what they're doing uh, or do it yourself and make a mess. But so I I don't have a ton of familiarity with with the structural understanding of what these guys are coming from. But in the ancient times, this imagery is so clear that highly trained stonesmen, stonesmen, they would carefully choose the stones used in construction. And the stone was more important than anything else. The most important stone of all was the cornerstone because the integrity of the whole structure, depending on the cornerstone, uh, containing exactly the right lines. So if the stone wasn't exactly right, the building wouldn't be exactly right because nowadays we, we build down into the ground in order to have a foundation that is firm. In the first century, they didn't go down into the ground. The, 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 the foundation was the first level. And so that initial stone that you picked was so significant because it became the thing that bore the weight of all of it. The whole weight of the house hung on the cornerstone. And when you came upon the rock that didn't fit the cornerstone, you would reject it. Maybe you could use it later for something else, but the cornerstone was the primary piece that sat as the foundational element to the whole structure. And Jesus says, that's me. I, I'm that. You have rejected me, but this is what I have become. And so what I want to do in this this next few moments with us is tell us what the scripture is saying, primarily what it means, and then secondarily what it means to us. So if we ask, what does this parable mean? Jesus, what are you trying to say to us? The first thing we have to recognize that what is happening in this parable is that number one, Jesus is predicting his rejection, his death, and resurrection and the religious leaders are blind to it. Primarily in this text, he's predicting, I will be rejected, that's gonna happen a couple days from now. I I not only will be rejected, I will be killed, just like the parable says. But let me be very clear with you. This parable has, has an alternative ending where there is a resurrection that you religious leaders are absolutely blind to. And Jesus says clearly, I am here today in a long line of stewards. The prophets were sent to you. Isaiah was sent to you. Micah was sent to you. Joel was sent to you. John the Baptist was sent to you. The prophets were sent to you, calling out for you to repent and to change. And you didn't listen to anyone. You sent all of them away. I stand here as the newest in the line of the prophets. And just for a moment, man, can we we marvel at the fact that three days before Jesus' death, he is predicting his resurrection. He has not left the message 
that he will resurrect from the dead. There's multiple times he predicts his resurrection. One of those times is he says, after I'm raised up, I'll go with you to Galilee. And the disciples are like, what? You're going to be raised up? What's that mean? There's another time where he says, you destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And the religious leaders are like, what are you saying, man? That's like, that's not possible, Jesus. I don't know if you know, I know you're a carpenter, but like it took longer than three days. You and your disciples, like those guys are fishermen mostly and a couple tax collectors. You don't stand a chance. He's like, you guys aren't listening. So he's communicating this all the time. Uh, another, another time he says, no sign will be given to this generation except for the sign of Jonah. And that's a story where this guy goes in a, a big fish. We, we tell the kids it's a whale. The Bible doesn't call it a whale. It's just a big fish, right? And for three days he's in there and then he comes out. And so these are the stories where Jesus is pointing to and predicting his resurrection. He built his entire teaching and his life around the self-understanding that included a resurrection. If he didn't rise from the dead, you've you got to catch this. He should not be considered a good teacher. He should not be followed. He should be pitied because he always talked about being risen from the dead. So this parable is another story of saying, I'm, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed, but I will be resurrected. That's what, that's what the meaning of this parable is. And then secondarily, the, the other part of the meaning of this parable, number two, it was always God's plan for the rejected one to become the resurrected one. This was not a surprise. It's not like when Jesus gets rejected, everybody's like, oh no, this isn't part of the plan. Three days earlier, he told a story about what was going to happen to you. But we have to so clearly see this. This parable ends with a dead son. The story of God does not end with a dead son. This parable is, you have sent me away. You have killed me. Even the son is killed. But the gospel message is that the one who has been rejected is now resurrected, standing before people asking the question, are you going to reject me or are you going to allow me to resurrect you? That's the message that, that, that continues to be taught throughout the rest of the Bible. In Matthew 28, after his resurrection, he says, all authority on heaven and earth is mine. Why is it yours, Jesus? Because you've been resurrected from the dead. In Acts chapter 17, Paul, he, he confirms this message further. He says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And all of this, he has given us assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. The rejected one will become the resurrected one. And he will ultimately become the judgment of all people. How do we know that to be true, Paul says, by the assurance that he has been resurrected from the dead. That's how we know that to be true. So Jesus is very clearly predicting he'll be rejected, he'll be killed, but he will resurrect and it is all a part of the plan. You go, okay, great, Josh, I, I believe that. Let's, let's, let's call that good. What does that have to do with me? What, what does this mean for us? How does this affect us? Why does this matter to us? Well, I submit to you, if God is doing something in Christ that has made Jesus the cornerstone of the whole kingdom of God and all the things that God is building, Jesus is the cornerstone, then this has massive implications in our life. And here are just a few. What does this mean for us? that we are interacting with the resurrected cornerstone. The resurrected cornerstone is in our midst. This is what it means for us. Number one, if this is true, it means that Jesus is the only foundation capable of bearing the weight of all of your needs. If this is true, 
if he has truly become the rejected one who is now the resurrected one, who the entire house of God, the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom of heaven, all of these things are hinging and, and they're bearing their weight on Jesus being the cornerstone. If that is true, then that means that is true for our lives personally. And the religious leaders, they didn't see it. This stone that did not measure up to their standards. Jesus did not fit what they were trying to build. He did not seem adequate to the religious leaders in the nation. That stone that was rejected has been taken by God and placed as the centerpiece of all of civilization, of all of human history, of all of the world, in eternity past, and eternity future. This stone is the most important stone of all. And God is building a house, and that house is being built on Jesus. And he is the only one worthy and capable of holding up that house of God. And if he is holding up the house of God, God, he can hold up the house of God's people. If he can hold up the kingdom of heaven, then he can hold up our house as well. But there are still droves of people in this world, droves, some of us in this room, that are looking for other things to build their house on. There are droves of people so many of us watching this video or in this room that are functionally, we might say with our mouths, oh yeah, Jesus is Lord. Oh yeah, I love Christ. He, he's my cornerstone. I, I, I function all things through Jesus. But if we were really honest, there are many of us today, many of us who have built our house on money, that if our bank account is doing well, our life is doing well, we have built our house on security that if we have a home, if we have job security, if we have insurance, if we have all these good things, then, then our lives are doing well. We've built our house on money, on security. We've built it on beauty. As long as people think I'm beautiful externally, then my world is doing fine. We've built our house on people's opinion, on political parties. God help us. We've built our house on political parties. We've built our house even on good things like family. Some of us have built our house on family. As long as family's doing well, as long as everyone's doing fine and everyone's doing good, then my world is doing fine. Some of us have built our house on kids. If you have kids, they are not foundational elements to your world, yet they have been built on. They cannot withstand that kind of pressure. And you shouldn't be able to put that kind of pressure on them because you can't withstand putting that kind of pressure on your children. We have built our house on education, on intellect, on social media, and none of those will meet our needs. And you will move your house from one thing to the next, hoping that it can sustain, hoping that it can hold, hoping that it will meet your needs, perpetually feeling unsatisfied, depressed, frustrated, anxious, because none of those can withhold the weight of your world. And you can transition as much as you want from one thing to the next, but you will find all of them incapable of meeting your deepest needs. And every one of those things is fine in its proper place. But none of those things are proper at the foundational level of your life. All of them are fine if they're in a proper place. But the moment you put them into a place of, of the weight of your world bearing down on these things and they're supposed to hold you up and they're supposed to fill you up and they're supposed to meet your needs, they will never, ever, ever do that because those things are ever changing and what you desperately need and what I desperately need at a foundational level is an unchanging, through the generations, trustworthy standard for all things. And that is a foundation that only Jesus can offer us. So as clearly as we can say it, every house built on anything but Jesus will fail. Every house 
built on anything but Jesus will ultimately fail because Jesus is the only one who can support the whole structure of your life. And the Bible says he is holding together all of the realities of this world anyway, so trust him to hold together the realities of your world. When I read this parable, I thought about the little kid's story, the three little pigs. I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but of course you are. If you have any uh, understanding of uh, pop culture at all, you've heard the story of the three little pigs, their brothers, at least in the movie um, video version I watch on Netflix, there are three brothers with a mom. I don't know where dad is in the three little pig story uh, on Netflix, but the, the, the mom's like, okay, you guys can move away. And they move away to this cul-de-sac and they each build houses like right on the cul-de-sac together. And one of them builds it on straw. The other one uses some sticks. And they've got this one brother who's like a mason worker. And he wears overalls and a hat and he chews straw all day. And he's like working every single day. And the straw house goes up super fast. And that guy's like playing the fiddle. And the stick house takes like 30 more minutes. And that guy's eating some food. And the mason house, this brother's like building it properly, finds the right land. And why are they working so hard on their houses? And why is their mom? care so much because they are moving into a place that is occupied by the big bad wolf. And the big bad wolf's favorite food is little piggies. And so they go out into their place singing a song. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf, the big bad wolf, the big bad wolf? Who's? Oh, you never seen it. Okay, cool. Um, that's the song they sing in this movie on Netflix. And the big bad wolf eventually sees them through his binoculars and he goes down and, and what, what's his MO? He huffs and he puffs and he blows your house down. So he goes to the first house. He huffs and he puffs and he blows the house down. But luckily the little pig runs out to this brother's house who's got a house of sticks. No big deal. They live in the same cul-de-sac. He goes on to the next house. He huffs and he puffs and he blows down the house. It takes like three blows to blow down the house of sticks. And ultimately they run away at the last minute into their masonry brother's house who has a house built of bricks. And the big bad wolf, he huffs and he puffs and he can't blow the house down. And he tries to go through the chimney because that's the only way in. But the masonry brother also like has this massive pot that he boils because I don't know where he found that thing, but he built one of those. And so now he's ready and the big bad wolf comes down and the water, whatever's boiling and it hits him uh, on his backside. And so all the little kids laugh and he shoots up through the chimney and he goes away and he leaves them alone and they all build, they live in a well-built house together. Jesus tells a parable of a wise man and a foolish man. One of them builds their house on sand and one of them house builds their house on a firm foundation. But here, here's the scary part of this whole concept of foundation. The scary part is it takes a while to realize you have a faulty foundation. It takes a while. That straw house was working just fine until the big bad wolf comes and huffs and puffs and blows it down. And the house made of sticks was working just fine. It, it could handle a little bit of rain, it could handle a little bit of wind, but the big bad wolf comes and blows it down. It takes a while to recognize that what you've built your house on is absolutely faulty. In another parable Jesus gives, he says, the rain and the wind and the storms, they come and they blow over these houses. It takes a while to recognize that what you have built your house on cannot sustain the building of your house. 
And usually it looks like a circumstance comes against you or the enemy who is way worse than a big bad wolf in a children's story. The the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can destroy. Jesus says, when that devil comes to your house, you will start to realize your house cannot withstand the pressure of the enemy, the pressures of the world, the storms of this life. And you start to recognize under circumstances that the world brings and God brings and the enemy brings that you in fact build your house on something that can't sustain. And it takes a while to realize that. But you find people bailing from the faith when in the end of the day, they had a straw house to begin with. The house never stood a chance. Sure, they would go to church and sure, they would sing songs and they loved really emotional songs. They liked to feel things from God, but they never really built their home on something that could last And so the moment somebody gets sick or the moment someone dies, the moment the finances are low or the moment issues come along, they had a straw house all along. But they love to feel good and they love to, Jesus makes me feel good. And and my whole life is about inspirational quotes and these kind of things. Inspirational quotes will not sustain this life. Just wait. I know some of you are young and you don't think it's going to get bad, but talk to someone who's 30 years older than you and they will tell you those cute little roots you've built, they're not going to last. You need a deeply rooted tree, a firmly founded house. You need lots and lots to sustain. And Jesus comes along and honestly says, I'm the only one that can carry the weight of all your needs. I'm the cornerstone. Come to me. Let me bear all of your burdens. Come to me. I'm the only one that can handle your needs. Secondarily, and this this is the harder one. If you thought the first one was hard, this is is worse. Um, Number two, Jesus is on a collision course with everyone in human history. And a collision with Jesus will destroy you. That's that's right there in the passage. Did you read it? Jesus says, everyone who falls on the stone will be crushed and everyone who the stone falls on will be broken to pieces. I'm on a collision course with everyone in human history, Jesus says, and that cornerstone colliding with you is absolutely going to destroy you. There was a saying in the ancient uh, Jewish world that said this, if a stone falls on a pot, it will smash the pot. If the pot falls on a stone, it will smash the pot. Did you catch that? If the stone falls on a pot, pot's getting destroyed. Oh, here we go. The pot will fall on the stone. Guess what? Stone still gets destroyed. And so whether the stone falls on the pot or the pot falls on the stone, the result will be the same because the stone will break the pot. This is a way of saying, Jesus is saying, an encounter with Jesus. If you have an encounter with Jesus, you will have a collision with him of any kind. You will be pulverized. There's no way around it. This is Old Testament imagery where Isaiah chapter 8 says he's a stumbling block for some. He's a crushing block for some. This is imagery all throughout the Old Testament. This is imagery that's picked up on in the New Testament. The, The application here, when you hear that terminology, the application here is be careful how you engage with Jesus. Everyone who engages with this stone will be broken to pieces. A collision will destroy you, Jesus says. And you go, why why is that so hard, Josh? That's just a metaphor with pots and stones. And what what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that contrary to the message that our culture teaches us and contrary to the message that a lot of uh, churches teach, Jesus did not come to the earth with a message called great job being you. Jesus came to earth with a message, you must be born again. 
Jesus did not come to the earth with a message, you're doing great, keep it up, buddy. He came to the earth with a message, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here. He did not come to the earth with a message that had the word self followed by actualization. He came to the world with a message that had the word self followed by the word denial. So many of us are like, let's get actualized, let's do great. Jesus came here to be my cheerleader, my encourager. He says, no, I came here to crush you. Because you you may not remember this, but you are absolutely entrenched in sin. Born into sin, living into sin, thinking into sin, operating into sins. And I did not come to this world to endorse you. I came to this world to crush you. And listen, resonate, I submit to you, the crushing that Jesus offers is the best news in the world. This is great news for us because he is not simply a a, a bully or a mean, powerful guy who crushes us. No, no, he crushes us so that he can beautifully do the work of rebuilding us into his likeness, into his image, empowering us with the power of the Holy Spirit that, that works inside of us, fighting off that sin nature, growing into our new identity. A collision with Jesus should destroy your life and you should want it no other way. You should want him to come against you and to smash you and to take your house that you've built on other things and smash it to the ground. And you should go to him and say, okay, you've smashed that to the ground. Teach me to live in a new way. Teach me to take my finances, my parenting, my kids, my family, my education, my intellect, my outer beauty, my social media, all of that stuff, and teach me to build that into your likeness on a foundation that sustains It reminded me of an old Keith Green song. None of you know who Keith Green is, and that's your fault. That's your bad. (laughs) Figure it out. Keith Green has a song, and it says, Oh, Lord, I am weak and I'm trembling. For the Lord I'm always remembering. For what a strong shepherd holds me in his arms. He will break me and make me his own. What a strong shepherd that holds us in his arms. He will break us and make us his own. If you belong to Jesus, he will shatter you and he will reconstruct you. But what do you do with Jesus? Do you go, no, I want to avoid him. I don't want to be smashed by him. I'm going to avoid him. I'm going to take the nice stuff he says and make myself feel better. Or do you say, no, 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 I I am sinful at birth. I cannot save myself. I cannot even think proper thoughts. I am a mess. Jesus, will you crush every part of me? and build me and reconstruct me. And I submit to that. I, I want to collide with you every single day and be crushed by you and rebuilt by you. That's what I long for. Because crushing is a way of saying my life has been altered. It's been forever changed. Now I see things differently. This is terminology that we use for other things. Uh, I, I remember like when our daughter Harper was born, like that first night, Amy was asleep and everyone was gone. It was just me holding like this eight-hour-old baby and just being terrified of like, I'm so sleepy. What if I fall asleep and drop her? Oh no, right? These are real live dad thoughts. <clears throat> Dads feel very insecure when they are left alone with a child at eight hours old. So you're like, oh God, oh God. That's, that's your prayer your first night. Oh God, help me keep them alive. Oh God. And if you hear any sounds, you just yell for a nurse. Like it's very, very, very nerve wracking. But you're holding this little girl. And I remember holding my daughter that first night. And I, I remember thinking, this changes everything. This little girl is crushing me right now. She's changing my identity. I'm now a father. She's changing 
the decisions we make because we have to account for her. She's changing our finances. She's changing our family. She's changing every dynamic about my life is being crushed by this little girl. And I wanted that. I longed for it. It was my joy to change and to live differently in light of that weight. The weight of having a daughter. The weight of that crushed me and it was my joy. And this is the story that Jesus is saying. The weight of inter of interacting with me, of encountering me is a crushing weight, but it should be your joy to find a new identity and to find new values and to find new ways of thinking and making decisions and planning and processing. Allow me to crush you. It is great news. If you belong to Jesus, he will crush you and reconstruct you. So this is how it applies to us. Number one, he's the only foundation capable of bearing all of our needs. Number two, he's on a collision course with everyone in human history. And if you collide with Jesus, it's going to crush you. And the last thing we see from this parable so clearly is that Jesus is the only one who can save those who believe from eternal rejection. He's the only one who can save those who believe from eternal rejection. I don't know if you like stories that have a good loop back or a good aha moment or a good moment where the, the enemy like really gets what's coming to him kind of movies. But, but in the story of Jesus, there's, there's an interplay that happens in the book of Acts that takes this story full circle. And the best way to understand the Bible is to let the Bible interpret the Bible. And so there's other places where the Bible interprets this passage really beautifully. And in Acts chapter four, Acts chapter four, Peter and John have been arrested for causing a stir in the city because they healed a guy who, who had been uh, like lame for a really long time. And when they healed this guy, they healed him, healed him in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that's a problem because Jesus Christ of Nazareth has been killed and they can't find his body some of his followers say he's been resurrected. The, the religious leaders are terrified of that. The Roman rulers are struggling with that. But there is a missing body. And the disciples say, oh, yes, yeah, sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's where Jesus is now. In case you guys, I don't know what you're looking for, but he's up in heaven. And so they take this message and they use it and they heal a guy. And they get in trouble. And guess who they get called in front of? The same leaders and chief priests that accused Jesus in Luke chapter 20. So Peter and John, the followers of Jesus, are brought before the same council that Jesus gave this parable to. The same guys. And, and starting in verse 8 in Acts chapter 4, here's what we read. Peter and John look at these guys and they say this. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a cripple, by what means this man has been healed, be it known to you all, and to all the people of Israel, that it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders. Whoa! This is the stone that was rejected by you builders. Hey, you remember Luke chapter 20? Remember that parable of Jesus and all the guys coming and reject? This is the stone that has been rejected by you builders, but which has become the head of the corner. And then they add the mic drop sentence of all, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name 
can save you from the eternal rejection of God. No other name worthy of building your life on, building your house on, no other name worthy of being crushed by and then being built up again. No other name available, accessible, solely capable of saving you from the rejection that is absolutely deserved by sinners. The rejection of God, no under name given under heaven among which men must be saved. This isn't just building your house temporarily on a good foundation. This isn't just letting Jesus crush you and build you up to be more like him. This is trusting him for the eternal assurance of your salvation. Not just trusting him to be a good foundation, not just trusting him to build you into his likeness, but trusting him that he alone holds the keys to the eternal house of God. And he alone is the doorway into the eternal house of God. And he alone is capable of ushering us in into the eternal house of God where there is no sin, there is no fear, there is no rejection. He alone is the only one that can allow us into that place. And he has offered that to us. There is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. The love of Jesus in this passage is overwhelming that he is so straightforward with us. He is so straightforward that he says, rejecting me as the cornerstone to build your house on, to be crushed by for eternal salvation, rejecting me is the most tragic decision that anyone in history could ever make. Why is it so tragic to reject Jesus? Because Jesus was so gracious to be rejected in your place. He took on the rejection of God so that he could then hand us the eternal assurance that we would never be rejected by God. He took on being crushed in our place so that we could joyfully allow him to crush us and be built into his likeness. He currently bears the weight of the entire kingdom of God and he is capable of bearing that weight and he wants to offer us an opportunity to build our houses on him. He has been rejected. He has been crushed and he offers that to us. And in verse 19 of Luke chapter 20, the first religious leaders and, and, and uh, high priest, the Bible says they were blind to it. And the question we have to ask today is are we blind to it? Are you blind to it? Are you building your house on other things because you're blind to his foundation? Are you running from him instead of allowing him to, to bear down on you and crush you and change you because you're blind to it? And do you believe you stand right with God when in fact you don't stand right with God because you're blind to it? The most tragic thing in the world would, to would to be to have the wrong perspective of where you stand with God. And Jesus says, I can clarify all that for you. I'm the one that was rejected so that you don't have to be. So the question is, where do you stand with Jesus? Where do you stand with Jesus? Will you build your house on him? Do you submit to him as Lord? Are you wanting to collide with him every single day? 
He's saying, God, I'm going to build my house on you, and I want to collide with you every single day, and I want to live in your house forever. And every one of those keys is my relationship with Jesus, not an idea, not a church, not even a, a religious book or religious thoughts. It's Jesus. What's your relationship with Jesus? Are you building on him? Are you being crushed by him? Are you trusting him for eternal salvation? So according to Luke 20, the word of God is telling the church of God, build on Jesus, resonate church. Be crushed by Jesus, resonate church. And be saved by Jesus, resonate church. Reject any other foundation. Reject any other way of life. Reject any other false saviors and take every single compartment of your life and put it squarely on the foundation of Jesus. Let him hold you, let him change you, and let him save you. Do not be blind to what he's offering. They were blind and they missed it. And Jesus stands before us again here today saying, don't be blind. Build on me. Be crushed by me. Be saved by me. That is the good news that he offers that to us. May we be the kind of people who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And may we respond to this beautiful message. And let's pray that God would give us the heart to respond. Father, thank you so much for the clarity of your word. God, thank you that Jesus was loving enough to be direct with us. He was loving enough to, to be honest with us. He did not say, there are many stones out there. Go pick your favorite one. He didn't say, there's, there's, there's a lot of other ways out there. Just choose your own adventure. He looked at his people and he said, some of you are building your house on faulty foundations and you need to change. Some of you are being influenced by things that have no place in your life. Some of you are trusting things for salvation that should never be trusted for salvation. And Jesus loves us enough to say, build your house on me. Let me crush you, collide with me every single day. And you do that every single day. You build your house on me, you collide with me every single day. And ultimately that will lead to an inheritance in the eternal house of God forever. So Father, we, we rejoice in the gift you've given us in Christ. We rejoice in his honesty and his love. And God, as a church, we do not desire to be endorsed by Jesus. We desire to be crushed by Jesus. God, as a church, we do not want pep talks from Jesus. We want clear, hard truth from Jesus. And God, we want that because you love us and you're for us. And this is for our good. So God, as we continue in a time of worship, as we continue in a time of communion, I pray that even in this time, we would be crushed and built up. We would repent and we would believe. And we'd be transformed even this morning by the power of Jesus. 
And I pray that in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.